We look together this evening to God's truth in the first commandment. How that calls us to a life of putting off the old man and putting on the new. A life of confessing Christ actively. But as we prepare our hearts to do that, I'd like to sing with you Psalm 143. We find that in selection 295. This is a plea, a prayer for God to intervene. Number 295, let us sing all the stanzas standing to do so. just saying, says, Thou art my God, to Thee I pray, teach me Thy will to heed, and in Thy right and perfect way may Thy good Spirit lead. That's the calling of the first commandment. And that's what we consider this evening. But before we look at what our Lord's Day says, Lord's Day 34, concerning that, and we're going to look at, we've already read the Ten Commandments today, we're going to look at the portion of Lord's Day 34 found on page 48. But first I'd like to read with you from Exodus chapter 34, the verse 14 verses. Now this, just to put it in context, this is after the giving of the law. This is after the golden calf incident. When Moses had been up on the mountain for 40 days, had received the law, the people had given up on him and had Moses make them a golden calf to worship. And then Moses came down and disciplined the people, breaking the law in the process, or breaking the tablets of the law. And now we read, the Lord said to Moses, 
cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the, mount, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now, Lord's Day... 34 begins by asking, what does the Lord say in His law? It recites the Ten Commandments for us, and then it asks us, how are those commandments divided? And we answer into two tables. The first has four commandments, teaching us what our relation to God should be. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I not wanting to endanger my very salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or other creatures, that I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust Him alone, look to Him for every good thing humbly and patiently, love Him, fear Him, and honor Him with all my heart, in short, that I give up anything rather than go against His will in any way. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. And we'll come back to that. Brothers and sisters loved by God because of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago we heard in studying Lord's Day 33 that God's people are to live in such a way that we confess Christ daily, not just with our lips, but with our very lives. And that's a comprehensive calling. We saw that as those who have recognized their need for Jesus, we're called to repent of trusting in me and to begin instead to trust in thee, that is in Christ. 
Recognizing that Jesus has become our king, we're called to reject my will and to prefer instead to seek thy will, the will of Christ, our king. And having come to see that we were created to serve and to glorify God, we're called to renounce our personal pursuit of glory and instead we're to pray thine be the glory. As I said, that calling is comprehensive. It encompasses all that we do, all that we say, even what we desire. And we will struggle to take up that calling every single day of our lives until the Lord comes or takes us home. But to help us in that pursuit, God has given us, first of all, His Spirit to empower us, but then also His law to direct us, to show us what we must put off and what instead we must take on. That we might have a life of confessing Christ. And looking at the first commandment of that law, we see the calling of God's people to serve only Him. And that's our theme. The calling of God's people to serve only Him. And it begins negatively by renouncing the world's idolatrous alternatives. But of course, to to understand that, we have to ask, what is idolatry? In fact, we think of idolatry, we think of what we read of in the Bible with the the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all the rest, how they made images of bulls and calves and goats and serpents and every other thing under the sun. And they worshipped before them and they gave offerings to them and they committed lewd acts in front of them and how they they made offerings under every green tree on every hill. But idolatry is bigger than that. Our catechism beautifully defines that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. That's beautiful. That's, that's important for us to recognize. Our catechism gives us some examples. Magic and superstition. Those are pagan idolatries. Men call upon spirits or upon the cosmos itself to provide what they desire. They, they rely on their incantations or their rituals or their karma in order to give them what they need. It also mentions prayer to saints or to other creatures. That's what we often think of as a Roman Catholic idolatry. Asking holy men to intercede with God on our behalf rather than relying on Christ alone. You see, the concept that is denounced is broad. Rather than trust in God alone, we're trusting in God and also something or someone else. Or we're putting God aside and we're just turning to someone or something else to give us what we need. But let's be honest, we're pretty unlikely to be tempted by the examples there. Idolatry, magic, superstitious rites, prayer to saints or other creatures. That's not really us, is it? And it's kind of tempting to just stop there and say, you know, just just avoid that stuff and you're good to go. But, but John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. Factories of idols. Because you see, Satan is endlessly creative. He gets us satisfied that, sure, we've done our duty. We've gotten rid of those idols. But, but then he creates new ones, more subtle ones. And he leads us astray with those. We're not tempted, most of us, I don't think, I hope not, by Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses or any of the other false religions that are out there. I don't suspect that we're going to get any Muslim converts anytime soon, and that's great. 
But what about that health and wealth gospel, that self-esteem gospel that is so popular in American evangelicalism? We see it in the TV preachers, we hear it on the radio, we see the megachurches emphasizing the five steps to a better you, to your best life now, to your best marriage now, to getting your finances under control. It's all about me. And certainly the gospel encompasses me and my life and everything in it. But it's not about me. It's about how God is to be glorified. How God is to be honored by the people whom He has redeemed for Himself. And all the other stuff serves that. And when we start forgetting God and focusing on us and asking what is God going to do for us, what's in it for me, we have embraced an idol, you see. Or think of the men or the systems which demand our absolute trust with the division in our nation right now. We hear time and time and time again, multiple times every day, this person is the only one who can make our nation what it ought to be, who can save our nation from imminent destruction. It's got to be President Trump, or it's got to be this or that or the other or the other or the other Democrat candidate. They're the only ones who can preserve our nation. And if we don't elect this one or re-elect that one... And you see, we, we forget that God is really the King of Kings. And that our nation, although we need to deeply respect those men whom God puts in office, they're not the savior of the nation. Nor is the political party to which they belong. Nor is any other political philosophy that folks seem enamored of. Today it's socialism. But socialism is inherently a false god. Socialism calls people to look for their well-being, for their future, for their prosperity, even for their basic sustenance to the government. It replaces God with the government in the daily life of the people. And it encourages the people by urging them to covet what their neighbor has. It's not fair that they have so much and you have so little. We have to tax the rich and give to the poor. We have to be Robin Hood. But that's idolatry at root. We see it in radical environmentalism. Believing that the continued existence of our world is dependent on us. Certainly we have to be good stewards. But when we start saying that if man doesn't do this, 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 and this, if man doesn't take these radical steps, then the world is... God is not that fragile and neither is the creation that He has made. And we are not that powerful. That agenda is idolatry. You see, it's all around us. Anything in which we might trust alongside of or in place of God. The biggest idol in our repertoire is self. It's self. Men rely on themselves to do, to act, to plot and to plan for their prosperity, for their righteousness, for their continued existence. Men look in the mirror, but again, it is idolatry and God commands us to reject it. If we are His, if we enjoy the salvation that comes through Christ, then we must renounce every alternative hope. We must renounce anyone who calls us to trust in anyone or anything other than Jesus. We heard His word in Exodus 34. God proclaims that He is the Lord, the only one. And He is a jealous God. Now, 
Jealousy gets a bad rap. We think of jealousy, you know, what comes to our mind first of all, especially you young people, you think of a jealous boyfriend or a jealous girlfriend that becomes overbearing and and tries to separate you from everyone. But there is a righteous jealousy. It is righteous and good for a husband to be jealous for the purity of his wife. It is righteous and good for parents to be jealous for the godliness and the purity of their children. It is righteous and good for the elders to be jealous for the good and the upbuilding and the purity of the church. That's good jealousy. And our God is a jealous God in that He is jealous for His people. He doesn't want them serving anyone else, anything else. He wants them devoted entirely and only to Him, like we saw this morning. Their great sin in Israel was that they were relying on themselves. They looked to Saul to save them. They looked to their own armor to save them. They they looked to their weaponry and thought that that was what would deliver them. And when it wasn't able, because Goliath was so big, they were without hope. But you see, they were relying in idols. The idols of the flesh. And God commands us to turn away from that. When the people entered the land of of, uh, Canaan, God said, I want you to go in there and destroy anything that smacks of idolatry, any altars, any places of worship, any statuary, any images. I want you to get rid of all of it. Destroy it. Annihilate it. Because I don't want you to be tempted. I'm too jealous for you. And we must do likewise. Whatever it is in our lives that is seeking to captivate us, to focus our attention on it instead of God. Are you tempted next week to stay home so you can watch the Super Bowl? Then you need to disconnect the cable television because it's become an idol. Are you tempted to not serve the people of God or to not serve in some way in the community because you've got this this hobby that you're passionate about? Well, maybe it's time to put that hobby away because it's becoming an idol. Is there some leader, is there some aspect of your life in which you are absolutely reliant? Is it your your investments? Is it your work? Is that what identifies you? Is it your friend group? If there is anything that identifies us, anything in which we trust, which we can't imagine being without, then that's what's become our idol, and that's what we need to throw away. And not only we, but our children. You see, we train our children by example. That's what God means. When He says, He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He tells us elsewhere that we each one will be facing His judgment Concerning our own sins. The fathers will not pay for their children's sins, nor the children for their fathers. So what's he mean then by saying that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation? He means that our children learn from us. Proverbs says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a blessing and a curse. Because if you train them in the way of godliness... They will not depart from that when they're older, but if you train them in the way of idolatry, if you train them that it's okay to serve God on Sunday and money Monday through Friday and entertainment on Saturday, well, that's the way they're going to follow. 
And they're going to be a lot more consistent about it than you are. And so for the sake of our children also, we need to put away our false gods. And that doesn't just mean, you know, one, one time out of every 365 days, uh, rooting through our lives. No, no, no. It means that daily we read God's Word. Daily we discuss that as a family. And when it hits close to home, when it starts making us uncomfortable, when it starts digging in deep to the things that we shouldn't be trusting in, that we acknowledge that together and pray about that together. They need to see that we're willing to put anything aside rather than to offend God, to put anything aside rather than turn away from the Lord. And we need to use every opportunity to teach them that it is God and God alone in whom they should trust when they're sick and miserable. Don't just talk about the medicine and the doctor. Read them psalms and show them that God is the one who brings healing. When they're nervous about a test or concerned about college or heartbroken over some boy or girl, show them that that God alone is able to help and that He understands. When they're studying current events and talk turns to socialism or global warming or evolutionism, we need to take them back to God's Word and show them that God is the answer, not this science, not that expert. That God is the one whom we must serve and that He is the one from whom we seek answers. It's important that we catechize our children once a week at church, but all of life must be a catechism to show them that they are called to root out the idolatry that comes so natural. Calvin was right. Left to their own devices, our hearts will manufacture a new idol every day. And we must teach them to root that out like an avid gardener roots out the weeds every single day that keep popping up. But of course, turning away is not enough. We're also called to turn toward. As we heard last time, God wants us to put off our old self with its deceitful desires, and He wants us to put on a renewed spirit in our minds and a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So having renounced the world's idolatry, we need to embrace God. And that means relying on His sovereign provision. This secondly, relying on His sovereign provision. That means, first of all, that we confess Him as the only true God. He told Moses that he is the Lord, the God. There is no other. He created the universe. We studied that in Seek and Serve this past week. That's an amazing confession to say that he made everything out of nothing. That means that he is reliant on no one and everyone and everything is reliant on him. Every atom of the universe relies on him for its sustenance every single moment. And so anyone who rejects Him rejects the one true source of life and goodness. He's also the redeeming God, the saving God because of His Son, Jesus. Despite what our modern philosophers say, Jesus is not just one way among many. He is the only way to life and peace and reconciliation with God. Our God is the Alpha and the Omega. He made it all. He redeems that which is His And He is the one before whom we will stand at the end as our judge. This is the one we must confess as the only true God. And having confessed Him, we need to look to Him for all that we need. Sure, we say that. But where do you turn when you're sick? Where do you turn when it looks like your job is endangered? Where do you seek help when you've been betrayed by your best friend? Where do you seek comfort and solace? Where do you seek restoration and help? 
when it feels like you have nowhere to turn? Do you spend your time seeking ways to get even? Daydreaming about the ways that you could get back? Do you just dig deep into yourself and try to figure, it, figure the way out? Or do you look to the experts? Do you find the people who are in the know? Do you network? Or do you fall to your knees? Do you fall to your knees first of all? And then secondly, do you call up your brothers and your sisters and ask them to fall to their knees? Humbling yourself, letting them know that your life is not perfect, that you are struggling, and that you need the help that God alone can give, so please help. There is very little that thrills the heart of your pastor, your elders. Like hearing a call from a parishioner who's going through a rough time and saying, I need prayer. Because when you do that, you're not a burden on us. You're showing us that you're trusting in the Lord and in Him alone. That you're relying on Him rather than yourself. And that thrills the heart of those whom God has given charge over you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, God is your Father and He knows what you need. You can trust Him. You don't need to worry. So instead, instead of worrying, instead of fretting, seek His kingdom. Strive to serve Him and trust that He will meet your need. And don't worry about tomorrow. And don't, don't just do that for the needs of your body, also for your soul. He is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Our God loves us so much that not only does He forgive the sins that we have committed, but He forgives the sins that we've yet to commit. He keeps taking us back time after time after time. I remember studying forgiveness early in my seminary career. And really studying Luke 17, where Jesus says, Your brother sins against you, go and tell him his sin between you and him alone. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in one day and seven times comes to you and says, I repent, forgive him. And the disciples responded by saying, increase our faith. Because they saw how difficult that would be to have one person come to you seven times in one day and ask for forgiveness and you have to give it to them. After about the fifth or sixth time, we start doubting their sincerity, don't we? How many countless times does God forgive us every single day? How many times do we return to that same old sin, that same old pattern, that same old temptation, thinking somehow this time it'll be different, and yet He loves us, He forgives us, He cares for us. Now, if He loves us that much, what do we need for body or for soul that He's going to, to withhold? Truly, He says in... Psalm 34 through David. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And therefore we must rely on him, trusting him for whatever we need, body and soul, in life and in death, from now on to eternity. That's hard, though. 
Because we like to be in control. We like to be calling the shots. We like to have a plan. My wife and I have talked at times about the plans we had when we were in high school and in college and how radically different our lives turned out. And that's hard. Because we like to have a long-term plan. We like to know what's next and, and work through the checklist. But if God's Word is clear about nothing else, it is that God has a plan. And that His plan never fails to come to fruition. And though sometimes it is far different than what we had envisioned, than what we had determined, it's always better. It's always better. And so we need to cultivate a trust in Him. You know, one way we can do that is by keeping a... I was just reading about this last week, providentially. The wisdom of keeping a diary. A journal. Just keeping a record of what has been happening in your life and how God has been answering your prayers. That we might look back and recognize, because we can't often see it at the time, but after the fact we look back and we see how God has worked. How He, went, he allowed us to go through this difficult time, but then that equipped us to triumph in the midst of a, a, an even greater difficulty or to counsel someone who's going through a really difficult time. See, God knows what He's doing. He's guiding us. He's directing us. The Bible is filled with that testimony. I mean, look at David. How many days did he sit there and watch sheep? That's a boring job. Sheep aren't terribly entertaining wonder how many of the psalms he wrote while sitting there watching the sheep with nothing else to do. But those long hours of boredom were interspersed by moments of sheer terror as suddenly a bear broke into the clearing, grabbed a lamb and took off running. And David running after him with his staff in one hand and his sling in the other. Wondering, why do I have to deal with this? Not knowing that God was preparing him to have the boldness to approach the great Goliath of Gath with confidence that not he, but God, would bring about the victory, just as God would bring about the victory with this bear and with that lion. And so he does in our lives. We need to recognize that. We need to cultivate that recognition. And we need to cultivate it in our children. That they might learn to trust God. That they might desire to serve Him even when it's hard, even when they don't understand the situation. You know, that's why God gave us His Word. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we are to train them up according to this word in every situation in life. And Psalm 78 says that he gave this word, this account of what he's done in the life of his people, so that our children may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. God wants us to cultivate in our children a faithfulness that is greater than our own. And we do that by, by reading His Word, by showing His faithfulness, by, by teaching them to memorize and love the promises that He's given, and by testifying to them of how God has blessed us, kept us, preserved us. But they'll only learn if we're intentional. 
And it's not just our children. It's the other children of the congregation, the young people of the congregation. Come alongside of them and ask them how they're serving the Lord, how they're turning their life over to the Lord, how they're seeking to follow the King in their life. You have no idea how much it means to a young man, a young woman, when an older person from the congregation comes up and takes such interest in them or writes them a note of encouragement in college, reminding them explicitly of the promises of God that He has a plan for us, Jeremiah 29, and that that plan is good. And it doesn't just have to be with the youth. You see somebody going through a hard time in the congregation or the Lord simply lays them on your heart, call them up, have them over for coffee, write them a note of encouragement, build them up that they might see their need to rely on His sovereign promises, His sovereign goodness. And listen, having learned, or as we're coming to learn, to rely on Him, we must also learn as part of the taking on how to reflect His perfect goodness. And that's the last thing we see here. Our God is unique among all that is claimed as a God. Among the false gods, there's always either a great distance or an immense nearness. So, for instance, among the Muslims, they don't expect Allah to really understand their situation. They don't expect Him to get the struggle with temptation because He is a distant God. He does, he's not relatable. He's not a, a God that you would expect to treat like your father. On the other hand, Hinduism regards its gods as extremely near and very relatable. Their gods are are manifestations of the divinity that they find in everything. And so they believe their gods can relate to everything they're going through. They just don't expect that they can help them in it. Either too far or too near. That's what all the false gods have in common. But the true God of the Bible is different. He is infinitely greater than us. I mean, He created us all with a word. He formed the universe the way it is. All of the creatures according to their kinds. All of the plants according to their kinds. He's omnipotent, omniscient, absolutely sovereign. And yet this God who is so great humbled Himself to become one of us. To live in the muck and the mire of a broken world. To endure the temptations and the snares and the slings and arrows of living among a broken people. A sinful people. He understands us. He gets it. And even better, He sends His Holy Spirit so that, so that we're never apart from God. He's with us in the darkest valleys and also in the most magnificent mountaintops. There's no place we can go where we are separated from our God. Folks, this is the God who has called us His children. No false God who has ever been imagined even approaches His greatness, nor have men designed an idol God whose love and compassion exceeds His. And our God wants us to respond to His perfect greatness and perfect nearness by reflecting His perfect goodness. We do that by a few ways, in a few different ways. We do it by loving Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, I know we don't like hearing that. Just tell me how much God loves me. That's a, a balm to my soul, and it is. But you know, I love it when my children say to me, Dad, I love you. I also love it when they show me that they love me by doing what I tell them to do. Right? 
Your words don't mean a lot if your actions show the opposite. If you say, I love you, Dad, and then you go and disobey everything I've said, well, that says that your words probably weren't really genuine. And so it is in in Exodus 34. God says, observe what I command you today, because that's how we show that we care about God. That's how we show that we really regard Him as our King. And loving Him is more than that. It's obeying Him, but it's also, I mean, how do you show love to the people around you? You spend time with them. You, you talk to them. You tell others about them. You share yourself with them. God wants us to commune with Him through daily times of prayer and reading His Word and sharing our day with Him and simply allowing Him to be in our mind and in our heart. We need to love the Lord and we need to fear Him. Psalm 1 says... The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Folks, that should make us sit up and notice because our natural way is the way of the ungodly. It's only because of God's abundant grace that we have avoided the fate of the ungodly. So love God, but also fear Him, respect Him, recognize that the only reason you're not facing His wrath is because of the greatness of His grace. He is the God who forgives. But He also is the one who by no means clears the guilty, visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children. He is a righteous and just God. So we should respect Him. We shouldn't take Him lightly. We should fear the Lord. Not only loving and fearing, though, we need to honor the Lord. We saw that again this morning, didn't we? Our God longs for our worship. He wants to hear us rejoicing in Him, celebrating Him, confessing Him with wholehearted joy, but in a way that honors Him. That means that our worship shouldn't reflect our desires or the desires of our community, but it should reflect what He has commanded, what delights Him. It's not so important that we sing the song that I love. It's important that we sing the song that God loves, that reflects His goodness. It's not so important that we hear the message that tickles my ears. It's important that we hear the message that God wants us to hear, right? That's the worship that honors Him. And we honor Him also by confessing Him. My wife probably wouldn't believe believe me if I told her I love her, but then... I never mention her when I'm talking to other people, right? Wouldn't seem like she was very important to me if I didn't discuss her among others. And so it is with God. If we never confess Him to others, if we never talk about Him with people around us, well, doesn't that betray that He doesn't really hold a high place in our heart? If He's truly the Savior and the Father and the Provider and the the all-in-all for us, well, then how can we not talk about Him with others? And if you're not, if you find that that's so difficult because you fear them, you you fear what they'll say, well, recognize that as a fear of men. And pray that God would give you such a love for Him and such a boldness and such a love for them who need to know Him that you'd be able to overcome that fear of men and confess Him before them to His honor. Brothers and sisters, this is perhaps the thing we need to teach our young ones above all else. They need to learn the importance of renouncing the idolatrous alternatives of our world. They need to see the importance of relying on God's sovereign provision. But it's in reflecting His perfect goodness, in 
in loving Him and fearing the Lord and honoring Him and confessing Him, that they cultivate that delight in the Lord that will make them want to reject their idols and that will make them passionate about trusting in Him. And we do that certainly by sending them to catechism. We do that by bringing them to church. But if that's all we're doing, they're not going to get it. They need to hear it and see it in us. They need to see that it's important to us that we spend time digging into the Bible as a family, but also individually. They need to find us, stumble upon us praying at random times, which they won't do if we're not doing that. They need to see in us that love for the Lord, wrestling with God's Word about what decisions we should make and what path we should take. Because if they see a love for God in us, if they see a passion for Him, if they see the fear of the Lord and a desire to honor Him, if they hear us confessing Him to others, that's what will cultivate in them a love for the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Lord calls His people to be grateful. And if we understand the depth of the misery of our sin and the the height and the glory of the grace that He's given us, we can't be anything other than grateful. And He calls His grateful people to serve only Him. Let us commit ourselves to prayer to that end. And especially you who are older, who have children who look up to you as fathers, mothers, grandparents, aunts and uncles. Dig deep and evaluate how can I more openly and clearly serve the Lord and show my love for Him. May God teach us to cultivate that love and may He make Himself to be our great delight. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we need Your help, Your power, Your passion that more and more we might show our love for You and for You alone, our reliance on You and on no other, that we might confess You as we take up this first commandment. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.